Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars explore the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Reverend Dr. Luigi Peñaranda. Uh, Luigi is a dear friend of mine and a fellow professor at Wesley Seminary, where he teaches multi-ethnic ministry as well as New Testament and Greek and a whole range of things. Leadership is another of his areas. He's a uh, polymath. He's amazing. And he's been on the show before, but it's been a while, sadly, just for scheduling and uh, neglectfulness on my part. Uh, so yeah, he's on the schedule this week, and I'm so excited to have him here to explore our passage, which is 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. So 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 2. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice so that others may enjoy this show as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Luigi. Would you be willing to read the passage? First uh, John chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse two. Yeah, no problem. Great. All right. First John 1. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus, the Messiah. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, uh, your word of life, which has been seen and heard and touched and handed on to us. And that is a word of life that brings liberation from sin and darkness, from suffering, from death, and from the forces of death in this world. Giving you thanks for that word of yours, which is born in this uh, written word that we've just heard today. We ask that by your spirit, we may be equipped to bear that word, to receive it and to hand it on, to be bearers of the word. May your spirit be at work in both Luigi and I this very hour as we attempt, not in our own power, but by your grace to carry the word. And may that same spirit be at work in all those who listen in as they bear the word for themselves and for the sake of the church and the world. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the one true word of life. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So let's begin with some observations per our custom, although I kind of, I, I, I don't want to neglect saying, man, it's been too long. I mean, we've talked, but I haven't had you on the show in forever. Sorry, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. I've been listening and uh, <laughs> oh, cool, man. <laughs> had a few new ones coming in and I was leaning on a lot of, a lot of my Old Testament geeks to, you know, fill out some gaps, but, uh. But as I was planning, I was thinking, oh my goodness, I have not had Luigi on in way too long. I think last time you were on, we were in Isaiah or something. That's right. Uh, man, that's too long, man. So sorry about that. It's not personal, man. <laughs> You're a great no guest. I just get forgetful and neglectful. And and have got a, as you're sure you've noticed and the listeners have noticed, the got a increasingly expanding kind of set of guests. So uh, it cycles around less that's frequently. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, so what are some observations? Uh, what, are you, what are you noticing here in this text afresh today that interests you and that you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, so first of all, I can't help but to, to hear that from the beginning part, right? It, the, the passage starts just evoking the beginning. And it, it is kind of hard to, to see that without hearing the echoes of Scripture elsewhere both in John, just talking about in the beginning, but obviously even that being an allusion to, to beginnings, to, to Genesis and to new beginnings and to creative moments. So it is quite interesting that the passage begins with that, that which was in the beginning that we've heard and seen, and, and, and we could sort of testify of being able to see the beginning revealed. So that's probably the, the first observation that I would like to make. And it is unclear, if you will, which beginning are we talking about, except it's connected to, 
to the word who is the word of life. So the whole testimony is sort of the unveiling of this newness that is in Christ. And whether you read this as a as an epistle, as a as a a sermon of sorts, um, it really is kind of saying, hey, what we're experiencing is that which was in the beginning. Yeah, I like that. That that from the beginning, which is subtly different yet connected to in the beginning, which mm-hmm. is the phrase from Genesis one and from John one. And yeah, I you mentioned that it's not immediately clear what beginning he's referencing here. I, let's camp out there. Like what, uh, what is the range of possible? And it could be more than one that maybe it's intentionally ambiguous. I don't know. We can leave that possibility open, but what are some of the options of, of ways of taking that phrase from the beginning? Yeah, it's quite interesting because on the one hand you have, um, uh, the images of life and light and uh, the word of life. So it clearly has some, some overtones of beginning, creative beginnings and, and how Jesus would be in, in flesh, this, this new beginning, new creative beginning that would reveal that which God has always done from the very beginning. So it, it certainly has that nuance, even if, if it's, it's just saying from the beginning. But at the same time, you, you see all these elements of almost empirical uh, knowledge, experience through the eyes and the ears and the senses and the being a, a witness. So it's not just uh, evoking images of abstract knowledge or or narratival knowledge it really is kind of invoking that that is happening but it it was clearly experienced by the author and by the community in in which they are so so it has this dual element in, in which you could almost think yes allusion to the beginning and creation but also to to this moment uh, in which they have an encounter, physical encounter with Jesus, and and it is that encounter that shapes and reshapes their understanding of fellowship with God. Oh, I like that. It makes me even uh, just to play with that observation, that duality. Let me let me introduce a another duality within the duality. <laughs> so, sure. you know, no one. You talked about the empirical knowing, right? The the hearing and seeing and beholding and touching with the hands. I mean, from a certain point of view, well, I won't say it that way. I'll say strictly speaking, no one bore witness to the original event of creation, right? Because we weren't there yet. That's what was being created was the there to be. And so the witnessing, the the knowledge of it, the the empirical encounter is its effects. It's unfolding in time after the fact. And you have a kind of parallel in the event of Jesus, which might not be irrelevant to what the author of First John is up to, where the, the hidden moment of God becoming flesh, the word becoming flesh in the womb of Mary is not seen or heard or touched by anyone. The only witness, as I strictly, I guess, is Mary herself. 
But even for her, it's a mystery. I mean, you know, you and I both have wives and children and know that, you know, there's no physical evidence exteriorly for quite a few months after a pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. So even for Mary, the 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 exact moment of incarnation actually doesn't have witnesses. Right. We tend to think of we talk about witnesses to the incarnation or or we talk about, you know, if you attribute the the books of Moses, right, whether Moses wrote them or not, just, you know, we talk about Moses telling us the story of creation, but obviously he wasn't there. He didn't watch it happen, right? right? Whoever, whoever wrote it, they weren't there. They didn't see it happen. And in the same way, the precise moment of incarnation is also a moment without witnesses. And yet it unfolds in a life story, which did have witnesses, people who saw him and knew him and heard his voice and touched him with their hands, which then Maybe I'm getting too far afield, but I do wonder if that's part of even what, you know, over the course of the book of of First John, there seems to be some kind of, he's debating with somebody. We even get some of that in the later part of today's passage. The If we say this, but really that, you know, three yeah. of these counterclaims. So he's clearly in the, in the midst of some kind of debate or polemic. So one wonders if maybe his opponent's I know there's a later statement about the Antichrist is the one who does not confess that that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. That the Son of God was manifested in the flesh, right? That's right. So this is flesh talk, even though we don't have the word flesh here. That's you right. You wonder if if he's wanting to emphasize the the empirical encounter and the and the whole story of Jesus, not just this kind of you could you could imagine a kind of Gnostic imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, obsessing over the the unknown secret knowledge of incarnation, right. whereas he wants to say, no, let's talk about the actual life story of Jesus, something very concrete. I know I've gone off for a couple minutes there, riffing off what you said, but <laughs> that 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 came to mind as a kind of possibility Absolutely. that. And and I also and maybe even saying the from the beginning instead of in the beginning is important because in the beginning right. can make us think of a moment. Whereas from the beginning signals a story and unfolding over time and a concrete encounter. I don't know. Just the that's, a, that's a great observation. And, and it almost seems like you were saying that th- there is this incarnational component, even in the, in the witnessing. And I think it is important that it's not just trying to say that, that we have perceived this with our senses, but that there was a revelatory moment, uh, that revelation that allows for that experience in the flesh. So, so in, in some ways, it is certainly arguing not just the image of life and light, but of capacity to witness this in a very incarnational way. So I, I see that in the passage as well. And perhaps that is the strength of saying our empirical knowledge has been enabled by the revelation of the Father from the beginning of of this experience. And I think the next thing that I would bring up is the repetition of fellowship and the importance of fellowship between God through Jesus with us and our fellowship with the Father through Jesus the Messiah, and eventually leading also to the idea of our fellowship that we have with him, but also with one another. So it, it, it frames the relational aspect of this passage 
in the importance of not just a connection with God, the Father through Jesus, but that the evidence of that connection has to be framed also in the way we incarnate or relate with one another. We have fellowship or koinonia with one another. So I think there's another element to reaffirm the incarnational value of this experience. Oh, that's really good to collect. Again, fellowship's another one of those words that could become spooky and disembodied and Gnostic, you know, and I'm hearing you kind of really bring that as concrete and fleshy and relational in the here and now in a way that fits and, and matches the reality of the word of life being physical and visible and touchable, mm-hmm. something very tangible about the event of revelation. And there's something very tangible and relational in the, the koinonia, the fellowship that flows from that. If, I, if I'm hearing you right, is that? Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think there's, there seems to be evidence that if the witnessing of this fellowship with, with Christ is, is true, as true as is being presented here, it has to be manifested in the incarnation of a fellowship with one another. And we begin to hear a little bit of, of those nuances in chapter one. And later on, I think John will really develop kind of saying like, stop fooling yourself. If this is not worked out through our fellowship with one another, like this is a lie, this is nonsense. And you, you begin to hear that kind of idea uh, later on in the, in the passage we read. Uh, that is trying to work out our fellowship with Christ, uh, with the Father in Christ, uh, but work it out in the flesh in 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 a way in which we have fellowship and 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 a way in which we must walk according to this reality, or our whole being as a community, in a sense, is a farce. We are not really being that incarnational witnesses of what God allowed us to experience empirically. So I think there's a lot of content there that can be unpacked. Yeah, well, that's really good, man. I'm. Ooh, this is already great. Let, let's take a quick break and come back and explore that some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Luigi Peñaranda, who's been on the show before, but uh, first time back in a while. So glad to have him on the show. And we're looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through chapter 2, verse 2. And uh, I'm going to try this, uh, a new thing this week. Been trying this out a little bit lately at the second segment to reread the passage again. So new, slightly different translation. So this is, this is from uh, Raymond Brown's huge commentary on First John. Hmm. I don't know if you've consulted this beast, but uh, <laughs> so here's here's his his attempt uh, at a pretty pretty wooden translation to kind of bring out some of the the oddities in the original. As Luigi surely knows, and maybe some of you listening in, even if you've done even a little bit of Greek, you probably did some First John because it's often a place to start. And that's right. It's really easy grammar, but it's actually really hard what he's doing. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of awkward. So it's kind of a mix of hard and easy. So anyway, here goes. So this is what we proclaim to you. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and felt with our hands. Our concern is about the word of life. 
For this life was revealed as we have seen and testify, and we proclaim to you this eternal life, which was in the Father's presence and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim in turn to you so that you may be joined in communion with us. Yes, for the communion we have is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Indeed, we are writing this so that our joy may be fulfilled. Now, this is the gospel we have heard from Christ and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we boast, we are in communion with him. While continuing to walk in darkness, we are liars and we do not act in truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in light, we are joined in communion with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanse us from all sin. If we boast, we are free from the guilt of sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is reliable and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wrongdoing. If we boast, we have not sinned. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing this to keep you from sin. But if anyone does sin, we have a paraclete in the father's presence, Jesus Christ the one who is just, and he himself is an atonement for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Man, there's so much there. <laughs> it's like too much for one, one hour, but yeah. So is there, are there themes from, from your earlier observations you'd like to unpack a little bit more? Or are there some new thoughts that are popping in your mind? Where, where do you want to go next with our conversation today? Yeah, it's interesting. I love I love the the shift from fellowship to communion. I think yeah. that is quite appropriate in reflecting on our communion with God, our our communion with one another. I, I love that language of communion for for a lot of reasons. It is interesting to me, John, that uh, th- there is this section of the witness where there is a we conversation, a level of we, the witnesses, proclaiming to you. And then the, the shift to this is the message we have heard. And from then on, just kind of being included in the if we say we walk, if we say this, in, in a sense, from the perspective of, of hearing this narrator almost belonging to a group of witnesses proclaiming to this group or this audience, but then at some point shifting to, to talk about that if we together, and I think that, that we is quite important in that um, it's not just addressing if, if as an individual this is happening with me, but I think it's certainly addressing a communal situation, and thus we have a, a, a plural we. If we sin, perhaps not so much as saying if you individually have sin, as much as if, if we all as a community do not walk in the light and, and live according to this truth, then we sin and don't have true communion with the Father. But but if we collectively <laughs> confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. And there is that interesting contrast between the us that, that is getting forgiven 
but later on also making a, a, a contrast with he's also capable of forgiving the sins of the world as if saying I'm, I'm addressing us and what the sin that I'm trying to allude to is not necessarily the sin of the world out there or the sin of the individual as much as our collective sin if we don't walk in accordance to this truth. So that's probably a, a different uh, shift in, in, in the language of the plural we, but it almost helps us distinguish different groups and, and different allusions uh, throughout the passage. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Oh, man. Well, I think a lot. I like it. That's really interesting. I, uh, I mean, it links back to the first themes that we identified obviously the we goes with the the koinonia or fellowship or communion or partnership another word we could mm -hmm. toy with this is the term that would be used for people who are partners in in, in business right. um so partnership fellowship communion even, even society which, yes and then it expands right mm -hmm. that's right so so this kind of we is then building on that. So I don't think it's totally disconnected. And then, and then back to the business about testimony and the kind of eyewitness testimony that seems to be being appealed to here, eye and ear and, and hand testimony that, mm -hmm. that there there's layers of we, and, and you could almost, I mean, just to kind of clarify for our listeners, if possible, and it's something to tuck away is that we're going to be in first John for all of Easter season now. So this is the first, and you get to go first, Luigi. <laughs> oh, awesome. And uh, and so this will be a recurring question in some. There's some tricky texts. Which what is he? What kind of we is he using here? And so I just commend our listeners to as you're studying First John along with us to track the we to sort of pay attention to what kind of. So I think there'd be the narrowest we would be like the the author himself kind of speaking in a we, you know, because sometimes an author will. Right. Sure. So that'd be the narrowest sense. I don't know how often he does that. You could even argue that he doesn't because he says, I am writing in verse one of chapter two. So he mm -hmm. can say I. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you could be the authorial we, but it seems the larger one in the opening lines of chapter one would be the, the we of the, apos the apostles, right? The, right? the first witnesses, the people who are with him from the beginning, which is a phrase that appears in the gospel of John that Jesus uses to speak about his disciples that you've been with me from the beginning. So that's the, we could call that maybe, I don't know, the apostolic we mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm maybe being too cute here. So we've got the authorial we we've got the apostolic we, that's and excellent. then we could say maybe the, the ecclesial we, which would mm -hmm. be like the church, the, the community that he's speaking to that he's also a part of. Yeah. So, and then within that, there's maybe a debate happening like the, if we boast, you know, there, there's maybe two groups of we, there's the, we, you know, what is it? We are in communion with him. Someone was mm -hmm. saying that maybe there was a group that maybe that, cause it seems like he's writing this to a church split. I can't help but feel that there's so <laughs> much tension and they've always, cause there's even a phrase later. If they were really from us, they, if they're really among us, they would not have gone out from us. Right. So there, there's a, apparently the splits already happened and they're trying to heal this and deal with rejecting what was false in that other community but also learning how to practice a love 
with each other and maybe also with them. That's a question mark how, how that sure. works. But so maybe there's like there's the ecclesial we and then there's like the schismatic we. There's the two we's fighting with each Absolutely. other over who really has the truth, who really gets it right. And then you added one that I was kind of missing, which is maybe the universal we, which mm-hmm. would be the the sins of the whole world, which would be the kind of the the, the biggest we of all. Mm-hmm. Sorry to be, maybe this is silly. Maybe the listeners are like, yeah, that's a little <laughs> dumb, but really the word we could mean any of these in any given verse. And you have to, you have to pause and make sure, is he speaking kind of from we to you, or is he speaking yes. on behalf of the community as a whole, or is he speaking for kind of the, his kind of team that's separated out? And there's a little bit of an us, them kind of inside the churchly we. Yep. So it, it's not always easy to track and it's worth paying attention to. I think it, it's clear enough here, but I think it's going to get messier over the course of the book. Yeah. And I'm glad you, you, those categories are helpful. And I think for anyone that's listening, it, it, it is quite, quite important. And I think in everyday language, we kind of fall prey of, of the ambiguity of, of certain words. Uh, I, I can think, John, of the word, the people you know, the people, we, the people, but those, we, the people are so interesting because it it could mean we, everyone included, it could be everyone in the nation, we, the people, but sometimes when the people want to speak, now you have a division. We're not talking about everybody speaking. We're talking about a particular group that represents a particular idea and and you sort of see here the language of fellowship, even there is like, what is true fellowship? Because just being fellows together is not enough to be the fellowship of Jesus who is in fellowship with one another. So there is those layers, I think, in this language of koinonia and com- community uh, and in these we's that help us distinguish that he's trying to address something specific within an inner circle and i love the language uh the shift to 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 children in in chapter two uh, when he kind of brings the the idea i forgot what it says uh, my translation says my little children but he's probably saying my my children and it, it almost gives a clear again we don't know what group he's addressing but he's cer- certainly breaking away from just talking to everybody in an open audience to to a very specific group that's understanding some of the things that are being brought up in in this passage. So the the language of the thing is fascinating to at least sit ourselves among some possible audiences that were hearing this message. Yeah, no, I dig that. That's really good. Yeah, let's, we can... We can camp on it if we want, or we can just do this real quick if you want. The the, the phrase, little children, my little children, technia mu. I was going to double check and see if so there's there's technon, which is child, mm-hmm. and then technion, which is this is a version of, usually means little child. Mm-hmm. But I've got a commentary here that says that two words are probably interchangeable but their use might be distinct in Johannine writings. So the language of little children might be an extra layer of kind of something endearing. And mm-hmm. there's only one time it's used in the gospel of John is in chapter 13, 33, right? When he begins the, his final last discourse there at the last supper, 
my little children, you know, do not be dismayed. So maybe it's a sort of a a term of endearment, perhaps, which goes back to your point of this being a, there's a community here, a fellowship, a communion, a connection Mm -hmm. uh, that's deeper. And if we're not a sort of living out that communal love together, then all our talk about the word of life is rendered, what do you call it? Rendered nonsense, right? (laughs) Right. The way we treat each other is really the payoff. I mean, it's wild. It's kind of a weird logic. Verse one, I mean, chapter one, verse five, it says, you know, God is light and in him, there's no light at all. And you're kind of like, oh, maybe he's going to wax philosophical about God is light. And it's just immediately turns attention to us walking in the light. And so Again, I'm probably over-influenced by Ray Brown because I've been reading his commentary this year. I was just doing that kind of on my own for personal study. And then a month ago or so, I realized that the first John was the epistle lesson for, for Easter <laughs> season. I'm like, oh, well, turns out I was preparing for a fresh text and didn't even realize it. But, uh, but Brown is really, his take is that, that there was maybe some division in the community hmm. and that the, the book of the gospel John had already been written much before and there, there's kind of two different ways of there's a debate in, about different ways of interpreting the book of john because you know you could take john in a more kind of gnostic direction mm-hmm. right. um because there's less teaching about how to live your life and stuff in john it's more general truths about the reality of jesus and the the author of the epistle here seems to be suggesting like yeah, you can't just say God is light and know about that and think mm-hmm. about it and meditate okay. on it. You need to actually live it. If, if you don't live it, it actually renders us liars, which is, yeah. Yeah. I think too, John, going going back to the illusion of forgiveness of sin, I think it is also to affirm what you were saying, this idea that, yes, he is capable of forgiving the sin of the world, but that may not be what he's addressing here he's he's talking about if we yeah that's an aside you're right yeah yeah children <laughs> uh if we need forgiveness of sin it is available for us not not just for us but his language kind of makes this distinction of whatever he's addressing uh and, and whatever sin we 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 may want to include in there is is not the the typical New believer came to the church, and if you've never accepted Jesus and you have sin in your life, that, that's not really what he's doing. I'm, I'm using that, you know, as a platform to think about preaching, but, but he's really addressing the sin that perhaps is happening in, in the koinonia, in the group, in the audience saying like, hey, because of our fellowship and walking in the light with Christ, we need to address things that are happening in in our community and our approach to that is we have an advocate we we can come to him and and get forgiveness of sins and and be restored just like the rest of the world and so i think it it certainly is is interesting because most of my life i've heard that verse uh, about confessing kind of being used in the setting of um, evangelism and people that come for the first time to the Lord to open up their lives. and But I think as I read it this way, it really is kind of saying, watch out koinonia, oh believers, the, the way we live our life has to be 
in accordance with the way we proclaim our fellowship with the Father. And, and if not, then we got to come uh, with a posture of confession, uh, finding that in Him we can truly be forgiven of, of that sin, whatever that is. That's good. I, I don't think it... I don't think it dawned on me till just listening to you right now ever how many times have I looked at this text I love new seeing new things that the the sin that needs to be confessed here might not simply be individual acts of sin that we've committed against God or one another I think I've learned I, again in the de, in the in the decolonization of my mind over the years, right? Of which you've been an important mediator, Luigi. Uh, in the decolonizing of my mind away from my individualistic default setting, right? I think I've learned to hear that there could be a sin against the community. I've learned to see that the community would be necessary in the process of confession, and that we would confess. But I've still. I feel like my eyes are kind of just opening now, scales falling off, right? Like, whoa, there could be like the sin itself could be something that we have committed. And so it's we that need to be forgiven, potentially even the very divisions that John is addressing here. And and that becomes obviously very relevant for us that there actually can be forgiveness and reconciliation, even when there's been hatred and division between and among Christians, which, man, I mean, that's, if that's not immediately relevant, I don't know what is, right? I mean, that just really presses uh, the question of not just individuals being reconciled and doing that communally, Mm -hmm. the community mediating something individual, but actually that the community itself is experiencing brokenness and needs to be healed in its communal life is I think what I'm hearing you say, and I just kind of put it in my words, which is. My no, no, that, that's idea. excellent. And I, I think to take it even farther, that, that, Go for that it. is yeah. precisely what I'm trying to, to address, that, that there's, there is perhaps in this text a way of inviting the koinonia, the, the, the church, to understand that it has a part in, in confessing sins that that is not just the individual sin that someone committed that that as a group as a collective we come to him as he taught us in his prayer it, part of our koinonia with one another and with him is is this disposition of confessing and receiving forgiveness i think too john if if we want to take it to another level uh, the mention of well, we probably need to talk about uh, the, the the mention of the advocate or the uh, paracletos. But before we go there, the mentioning of, of the atoning sacrifice, the, uh, the illusion of a propitiation yeah. or, or, you know, the, the mercy seat. And there's so many elements that we could talk about there. But the one I would like to highlight is that in the Old Testament, Whenever the, the, the priest would come to offer a sacrifice on that mercy seat, first of all, it was something that was done once a year, and it was part of a ritual that the whole people had to participate. But even in the offering of sin, what is interesting, and in, in, we probably don't have much time, but what is interesting in, in the Pentateuch is this idea that the, the, 
the priest would have to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of the people, for the forgiveness of himself. And, and then the real uh, expiatory moment was when you had a sacrifice, but you also would let this goat escape into the wilderness. So not everything was lambs and not everything was sacrificed inside the mercy seat, there was this kind of covering of the priest, covering of the people, and then the letting go of the representation of a sin. I think sometimes we, we forget all the, the differences in, sac- in sacrifices. But what is interesting to me then is this recurring uh, sacrifice in the name of a priest and in the name of a people. And I think maybe it, it, it kind of helps us understand then, uh, and this is the people of God in covenant with God. So perhaps John is certainly inviting us to, to be a confessing community when we don't live out what it means to be the people of God. And that's why he uses that image. Therefore, I think there's a, a secondary argument to say, yeah, it is about forgiveness, but not just forgiveness of individual sin or forgiveness of everyone. He's certainly capable of doing that. But we're talking about covenant community or in fellowship that needs to come to him, confess and accept that forgiveness. And that that seems to be a, a part of a practice of a community in fellowship, seeking to be in fellowship with Christ. Man, that's that's awesome. That's great. A called to be a confessing community. I think we're getting near to a to a preaching theme. So let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest uh, Luigi Peñaranda, and we're looking at First uh, John chapter one, verse one through chapter two verse 2, the opening page of the first letter of John and the opening of our series here of readings from 1 John uh, throughout the Easter season. Uh, Whether we make connections to the Easter event, I mean, we just kind of landed with some references there um, and how that that atoning work, uh, that halasmos, this mercy seat, this sacrifice that Christ has been and is, is what gives us the confidence to confess our sins precisely as a community. So yeah, some great themes, man. It's really exciting. Let's explore some sermon starters. Uh, Where would you want to, you know, it's kind of often that's how I work in sermon writing is kind of you're studying a text, then you kind of get to a central idea. And then that's kind of the, the midpoint in the hourglass. Right. And then kind of not all of your exegesis comes into your sermon, but like for you, if you were, making recommendations to our listeners about where they might go or just for your own self, if you might teach or preach on this text, what would kind of be your central idea and how might you go about executing it in terms of the creativity of preaching and teaching? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think as everyone listening, we live in a time right now still with, with the, the pandemic and COVID and, and so many challenges to what we used to think the church was and the way we used to have fellowship with one another and the, the, the new emerging challenges would put me in a, in a mindset of realizing that as a church, we get to be the witnesses. Pe- people get to, to know empirically a reality uh, between the father and ourselves 
through the fellowship of believers. So I would try to frame this idea that while we may be dispersed and may have had to do things differently and distancing ourselves and perhaps doing online services, that kind of thing, but the, the reality is I, I think we get to the point that how we live out as a fellowship of believers in the Messiah is, is really an empirical testing of what it, what it is like to see the word of life, the light coming in and operating and forgiving. So I think John is kind of inviting to a, the, an incarnational realization that if we don't live that way, we need to f- ask for forgiveness. We need, we need to come and confess and rediscover, in a sense, what it means to be that community of the forgiven who show the world what it is like empirically to be in fellowship with God. So that would be probably the bottom line to where I would want to get to and probably say it differently. But but I sense that in this time, this is the time where the church does not forget what it does for the world. This is the time where we remember precisely as we move into Easter. It's not just that he forgave our individual sins, but that in dying and resurrecting, he reshaped who we are as a community so that the world would experience things that we experienced uh, and, and that have been in the beginning, but we needed this revelation to experience as a fellowship. So that would be probably a, a central point where I would want to get to uh, using this passage during this season and during these times we live in. Yeah, it'd be fun to, yeah, just kind of have a little strategic conversation with you now about ways of approaching that that central theme that I, that I resonate with a lot, this, this, this vision of the community as a, I like this language of confessing community. Maybe it's just because alliteration makes something sound more true because I'm a preacher, but uh, Mm -hmm. because it has that kind of double meaning confessing of both confession of sin, but also like confessing as in confessing our faith before the Mm -hmm. world. Right. So it kind of has that, nice double meaning that fits what you were saying. Right. So yeah. How to present a, a, a vision of a confessing community. I, two things came to mind as two different approaches and there's, there's probably more, maybe you'll want to pitch one or two. Um, one approach would be to really kind of name the elephant in the room of the divisiveness and of the, the destructive behaviors and attitudes that have, that have been at work in our communities, you know, to really name that and, and address it head on and find ways to really kind of name that and explore that. And maybe, you know, share specific stories of some, some ways that we've been causing pain in each other's lives, you know, (laughs) in our particular local community and then present, as a kind of good news, a relief would be kind of have a narrative flow to present this hope. I mean, how often have I been in circumstances where someone will, you know, you'll call out someone for being particularly nasty about politics or whatever, right? Culture. And when someone is like willing to confess it and own it and be like, yeah, you know, I do get worked up. I'm sorry. Like clearly we have a difference of views and we need to keep dialoguing and debating, but I don't need to demonize you in the process, right? When someone responds that way, it deescalates and there's that 
there, there's a moment of connection and community, right? Right. Um, even if not conformity of viewpoint, whereas vice versa, when someone's just saying, you know, when someone goes like, Hey man, I'm not fighting a culture war. I just care about truth, man. I'm just talking about truth. Right. And they just kind of, when you dig in your heels, it's really hard to get anywhere. There's no, there's no opening to really name that, that there's, that there's, uh, there's sin in the camp and there's Mm -hmm. sin, uh, to go around and we can name that and confess it together and then move forward together. So that might put people's guard up, but it might be necessary to name that elephant. So that's like one approach. And then the other approach that came to mind is a much more expository approach where you kind of sneak up on them. (laughs) So this is just talking about preaching styles, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because starting at verse six, I mean, after the initial points in the opening verses, like there's three of these, like if we say this, you know, right? There's three of them. It starts in six, eight, and 10. And really the one in 10 runs through chapter two, verse two. Because it's a if if we say blah blah blah, and then there's a, a verse later. But if we so that you could really walk through this because they escalate, they get more intense as you go <laughs> along. That's yeah. what I've realized that as I'm looking at it, right? It's like we are in communion with God. The next level would be we are free from sin, you mm-hmm. know, or even. Then verse 10, we have not sinned, right? Past tense. We have, we've never sinned, right? Like it's kind of like more and more crazy claims. And then his critique is even more intense. Every layer, right? We're a liar and do not act in the truth or the next level is we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Mm -hmm. And the last is we make him a liar and his word is not in us, right? It's like, there's a ratcheting up. And so you could introduce examples that are kind of, increasingly close to home so that by the end, when you get to the third, it's kind of like, you know, Oh, it's me. We're talking about us. Aren't we? You know, you could, you could build up slowly to it. And a lot of that has to do with the culture of your local church and your style as a communicator, which approach is going to be more effective. But those are sort of two strategies of executing your idea, Luigi, that popped into my head. And when you hear me say that, how do you react? You're like, that's, I wouldn't do either of those, John. Here's how I'd go about it. I'm wondering what's your what's your hunch in terms of style of communication? No, I, I think I, th- I think that's an excellent uh, way of approaching it, and I love your analysis of the rhetoric in the text. Which, if you think of an audience hearing uh, this message of First John, even the the hearing part is just so interesting. How it goes through the if and and it just gets to unveil the argument that at the end of the day, uh, the worst thing that we could do is deny this sin because what you're making God himself a liar. So I, I love, I love that when I think about preaching in a sense, how to replicate some of a rhetorical way of expressing that comes in writing, but that really you would have that, that experience as you listened to the whole letter being read in a congregation. So I, I love that idea. And I, I, I wonder too, from, from the, the preaching perspective, I think you can also hear that invitation to be going back to the confessing community of, of God to almost to understand that uh, in many ways, we have a tendency to relate to God that is contradictory. 
So with this rhetoric to exploit this idea and to expose the contradictions in that we love to frame our relationship with God as a, as a me and God kind of deal. And even going to the context in which we live, you know, we re- remain being the church, but it's always been about you and God and a fellowship that you have with God. And it's almost like John breaks that up and says like, no, the contradiction of that is that you cannot have a relationship with God, my me and Jesus alone kind of deal. If we don't live out and work out what it means to be me and others in the same fellowship with, with the same koinonia that I claim to have in my me and Jesus kind of world. So it, wow, it, it really yeah. kind of brings us to a practice that is quite interesting. I think definitely, like you said, this is a good time to, to reenact probably two practices, I would say. Confession is, is the one that we see in John. But also lament is one that I, I, would, I would bring from other contexts. To say it is in in our living out our confession as a community of of the Messiah and lamenting, I think that's why the Lord taught us we need to be praying, forgive us our debts, the way we live our life, indebted to, and I love the the word debt in those passages because it's not just forgiving others; it's living out in a way that we don't don't end and debt or create create relational debts and and in this case is confessing that we we could live out in ways that do not reflect what we say oh well me and jesus or i have a relationship with god that is not the church the church is really enacting the incarnation as we come and say hey we confess that we we do not live we live in a contradiction at times and the me and God relationship is not framed correctly until we frame it in the right fellowship with those who, ah, man, it's tough, to, I, it's tough to be with them at <laughs> the same congregation or church. Or I'm so glad that we don't need to gather together because it was getting a little too weak. Like when we fall into yeah. those mental traps, we... We can't lie to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a believer. I have a relationship with God, but I'm I'm kind of glad that I don't have to do this church thing the way we were doing it. That's one way of thinking about it, or the other way that we just congregate without taking a, a, an introspective sense of like, hey, as a church in the world, we must be the community that is quick to say, God, forgive us, forgive us for our sins, forgiving, forgive us for not living out in a way that is a contrast to the, w- the way of life of those who walk in the darkness. So there's a lot, of the, a lot of things there that we could explore. Yeah, I like that, the thought of how we could congregate without actually communing, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, maybe this is too cute, but and right here at the end, pitch one more outline, right? Is you could say, and be really fitting, right? If, you know, again, this, we're, we're, we're working ahead, but this will, this will drop for the, the first Sunday after Easter Sunday. And just because of the way, apparently, again, I might have to eat my words in a month when this drops, but things seem to be heading in a direction in terms of uh, immunity and, and vaccine that a lot of churches will be meeting in the flesh by then that haven't been, or ones that have been will have more returning. And if so, it's actually a good time to take stock and say, 
okay, let's not just go back and say, yay, we're back to where we were. Let's move forward and ask, what kind of community do we want to be? Are we just going to congregate without community? Mm-hmm. Are we just going to congregate without confession? Are we just going to congregate without something else? I don't know. I have a third. You, know, you kind of have to have three or it doesn't count as, but you know, uh, well, one was kind of emerging in my mind, but it was, it was, it was congregate without communion, congregate without lament was the one you mentioned that we really can lament what has come and what has passed and not just pretend that it didn't happen and move out, move on, but to really name it. And in our communion, let's actually confess, not just individually, but corporately. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that could be really fun, man. I think there's there's some exciting preaching and teaching possibilities here that we've pitched. So, That's yeah. Cool. Any last words before we wrap up, Luigi, to put you on no. the spot? <laughs> yeah, this is wonderful. Uh, I'm still thinking and will continue to think, but what a great way of challenging us to rethink our uh, approach to congregating and going beyond that to being a community that incarnates the type of fellowship that we can experience uh, when we come to Christ. That's awesome, man. Well, thanks so much, Luigi, for giving an hour of your time. Thanks, uh, as always, to our listeners for listening in and getting the word uh, out. Uh, special thanks to our patron saints, those who've chosen to support the show financially. Again, I have a day job. I don't see a dime of that. That's uh, for the the team behind the scenes, Todd and Eric, uh, without whom I can't imagine doing uh, this show. So thanks so much to them. Thanks to Tom for donating the theme music. And uh, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>